Welcome to the preaching podcast of Life Point Church. We're so glad you've joined us here. If you're ever in the Baton Rouge area, please stop by. We'd love to meet you. For more information on our church or Pastor Donovan, please visit our website at golifepoint.com. Now, I started this last week, but let me start with these uh, some review, and we'll kind of uh, cover a little bit of what we covered last time to get a jump start on this week's installment. So this is Revelation Reveal, chapter 22, part 2. This is part 37 of the series. So let's jump in at verse 1. And he showed me a pure river of water of life, clear as crystal, proceeding from the throne of God and of the Lamb in the middle of its street and on either side of the river was the tree of life which bore twelve fruits, each tree yielding its fruit every month. The leaves of the tree were for the healing of the nations. So we've, we've come through the millennium. Here we are in the new heaven, the new earth, and, and we're getting a glimpse and a look around. So this is a pure river of water of life. Now, we've seen rivers and we've seen water in the Old Testament. The prophets talked about water and a river in particular where it expresses richness, provision, peace of God, Isaiah 48, Zechariah 14, Ezekiel 47, which we'll look at in a few moments. And then I love this one, though, Psalm 46, 4 and 5. There is a river whose streams shall make glad, notice the wording, the city of God, the holy place of the tabernacle of the Most High. God is in the midst of her. She shall not be moved. God shall help her just as the break of dawn. I love that. Joseph Seiss says this, one of the gladdest things on earth is water. There's nothing in all the world so precious to the eye and the imagination of the inhabitant of the dry, burning, and thirsty Middle East as a plentiful supply of bright, pure, and living water. Pretty cool. It makes glad the city of God. One writer put it like this, to let us know that in heaven there shall be no want of anything that can make the saints happy. So everything we need for happiness we see here with this river of life of water, pure water. It's clear as crystal. It's pure. This is this is God's doing. It's from the throne of God and from the Lamb. So of course, it's, it's pure. It comes from God. How can it be anything but pure? Uh, and so, and it seems to be, and this is the difficult about difficult part about this chapter is trying to discern what is symbolic, what is real. It, it seems to be real, literal waters, a golden city, but it, it's this sublime reality that that John, in our terminology an ancient man is looking at and trying to wrap his mind around what he's seeing so we see that now in Ezekiel 47 we see this 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 glorious river you remember the guy waited he goes out into its ankle deep knee deep thigh deep etc well that was speaking of uh, water that flowed from the temple in Jerusalem into the sea in the millennial earth in the millennium uh and, and probably that would be, in my opinion, the last preview 
of, of this heavenly river. It's like this is the fulfillment of all those rivers. This one that we see in the new heaven, the new earth. And it's a better river with better trees. <laughs> the tree of life. The, the Bible starts, does it not, with a tree of life. And here we have at the end a tree of life. It's kind of cool. We, we, we see this kind of mirrored from the beginning, but this is the end and it's, it's better. It's the fix. In the middle of its street or on either side of the river, it's, the, the terminology here is a little hard to picture, this landscaping. So it's a large street with a river flowing down the middle of it and a big tree that uh, maybe covers both sides. Where's the street? Where's the river? Where's the tree? Uh, and different writers, I was reading after John Wolford from Dallas Theological Seminary, and he sees it one way. Uh, I, I like the way Charles Haddon Spurgeon put it, though. He put it like this. The picture presented to the mind's eye would appear to be that of a wide street with a river flowing down the center, kind of like Range Avenue in Denham Spring in 2016. You remember the first time you saw boats going full on down Range Avenue? Oh, that was miserable. I'm sorry to bring up bad memories. This is heaven. That was not right. That was the opposite of heaven. All right, so the picture is presented to the mind's eye of, of a wide street with a river flowing down the center like some of the broader canals of Holland or Venice with, with trees growing on either side and all of them of the same kind, all called the tree of life. So he paints it that way, and, and you can make sense of that from the language. And this, this tree of life is pointing to a restoration of all things. One writer put it like this, and I had to look at a lot of writers to try to make sense of all of this. Now at last, almost at the end of the great drama of the Bible, man may return and legitimately enjoy the blessings of Eden, as it were. It's kind of cool. Interestingly, each tree yields its fruit every month. Now, we've already discussed this. Time shall be no more. So here we are in timelessness or eternity, and yet there's still a marking of time. It says that they bear fruit every month which means to me we're going to celebrate birthdays, right? It's your birthday. I mean, if there's a month, there's a birthday. I don't know, but it does say that every month they yield their fruit. So it, there's a time indicator here, and, and I think that's interesting. Some people wonder, and I mean it's a legitimate question, will we eat when we get to heaven? Because in my opinion, how could it be heaven if we can't eat? The best answer is that we can, but we don't have to. I mean, when, when Jesus was in his resurrected body, if you'll remember, now he's glorified, resurrected, and he cooked up some fish, and he ate the fish. And so, I mean, if, if he could eat in his glorified body, I think we can eat in our glorified bodies as well. And why would you eat? If you don't have to, because you want to. Now that sounds like heaven to me, right? 
I mean, and good stuff, right? Twinkies, peanut butter cups, Carla's banana pudding. Heaven for a diabetic, that's right. I'm just saying, fried food, crawfish, you know. There's that Louisiana section over there. We're boiling up crawfish. We'll, Father, we'll go, we want 10,000 pounds of crawfish for this boil. We just go after it. Not because we have to. We want to. I love it, man. I just love it. And so uh, Jesus ate food. And we know that angels ate food. You see that back in, in Genesis when they, they meet up with Abraham and he cooks them a meal and they eat it. They eat it. So, and man is called angel food, you know, in one one verse, it's like angel food cake, right? So, manna, so it's, it's cool. And Jesus and his people are described as being at the marriage supper of the Lamb. And so, you know, um, even though man fell by what he ate, and that's an interesting study if you want to study fasting. Uh, fasting was in Eden. You can eat of all this, but don't eat that. Fast that. Fasting has been around from the beginning, and he chose not to do what God said to do, and he ate. And in spite of that, God's going to show us mercy, and he's going to let us eat when we're in heaven. At least that's what I think the scriptures indicate. Now, like the uh, golden table, Joseph Seiss says this, and it's, it needs to be said, like the golden table of showbread, whichever stood in the ancient tabernacle and temple for the priest to eat, so the tree of life stands in the golden streets of the new Jerusalem with its monthly fruit for the immortal king priests of heaven, which is us. We're, we're the king priests. We're a, a kingdom of priests. And we see this in Revelation in more than one place. The leaves of the tree were for the healing of the nations. So why do the nations need healing if this is heaven? Well, healing can also mean health giving, and that seems to be the sense. It's, it's where we get the word therapeutic, this, this wording, and it, it's, it's, uh, it, it seems to me rather than fixing things and healing things, it's just, it's just a healthy thing. The, they heal the nations. They bring health to the people groups. And so it's this idea of serving and ministering. Now, you see this, this, these words, street, river, tree, fruit, leaves. And again, are these literal or symbolic? Who's to decide? Uh, again, I've said this, I think it's all other dimensional. This is other dimensional. And, and so John is, is trying to make sense out of what he's seeing. And he's an ancient man. He's like, that looks like a river to me. That looks like a tree to me. And, and so he, he is making sense the best he can out of what he's looking at. So I, I can't say for certain that they're literal. It seems to be, to some extent, literal and not just figurative. And then uh, th this great chapter tells us about heaven. The idea is this: I, we should think deeply about it. Spurgeon made the point that it, how can you see a target if you don't look at it? How can you shoot an arrow at a target if you don't look at it? If our goal is to make heaven, and here are scriptures describing heaven, we shouldn't write them off and say, well, it's just symbolic, it doesn't matter, which is what we, 
end up doing a lot of times with the book of Revelation. That's just difficult. Who can understand it? Rather than doing that, we should look deeply into it. What does this mean? Are these real trees? What, what's the, the idea of this healing of the nations? We should look deeply into it because that is the target, y'all. That's where we want to go. We want to go. We're going to see it in a minute where there's no curse. There's no sickness. There's no disease. There's no pain. There's no sorrow. And we can eat forever and ever whatever we want to eat. We need to look heavenward. It's, our, it's what we're aspiring towards. Now, verses 3 through 5. And there shall be no more curse. Remember, remember the name Noah meant curse reverser. Because we saw this in the very beginning. The seed of the woman would bruise the head of the serpent. The ideas break the dominion, the lordship. The, the curse was, was, was a result of the fall of man. And there would be another son who would undo that curse. And so when, when Eve became pregnant and gave birth to Cain, she and Adam thought Cain was the curse reverser. Because the promise said that the woman's going to have a kid, a son, that's going to undo the fall and the curse. And so they were thinking Cain was the one. Not only were they thinking that the devil heard that and thought that she would have a son and that son would reverse the curse. But lo and behold, he didn't do anything. And then she got pregnant again and Abel was born. And the devil thought, well, it's either Cain or Abel. So he moved on the jealousy of Cain and got Cain to kill Abel. Killed two birds with one stone. And so it looked as if, okay, I killed the curse reverser. But then she got pregnant again and Seth was born. And then on and on and on. And the family began to grow. And who is it? Who is the one? And they were still looking in Noah's day. You've heard me talk about this. And Noah got a Bible name, curse reverser. They thought Noah, Lamech thought Noah would reverse the curse. They thought he was the Messiah, but he wasn't. He was just a boat builder, but he survived. And they kept looking, and finally, it wasn't until Mary was told, you'll call his name Jesus. That would be the curse reverser. Well, here we see there is no more curse. Why? Because the curse reverser did his job and reversed the curse. His name is Jesus. Cursed is everyone who hangs on a tree. He became a curse for us, took the curse on himself like that serpent, like that, that brass snake in the wilderness, became the curse, took the, the, the punishment for us, and, and uh, whosoever believeth in him shall have eternal life. As, as the serpent was raised up in the wilderness, that that brass serpent on that pole, so shall the Son of Man be lifted up. And Jesus said it, if I am lifted up, I'll draw all men unto myself. He's the Savior. He's the one that reversed the curse. So there shall be no curse. Why? Well, you see it. But the throne of God and of the Lamb shall be in it. The Lamb has overcome. It is finished. It is done. And His servants shall serve Him. They shall see his face, and his name shall be on their foreheads. There shall be no night there. They need no lamp nor light of the sun, for the Lord gives them light, and they shall reign forever and ever. So there's no curse. The curse is gone. 
It's pretty awesome. And by the way, what did the curse bring about? Husbands and wives fight? That's like one of the first things. That's fundamental. That's one of the elementary symptoms of the curse. You know, young people, you just need to keep this in mind. When you get married, Austin, Katie, listen to me. You're going to have to work to get along. Can I get an amen? That's why we have a marriage small group. Because what happens is you fall in love and you're like, oh, we have so much in common. We're just alike. You get married and all of a sudden you're like, who is this person? We have nothing in common. Where did you come from? You tricked me. truth it's the truth that's part of the curse hey and I don't care if you get the Holy Ghost baptized in Jesus name speaking tongues every day you still got to deal with your wife or your husband am I right or am I right I feel my help up in this place man I feel the Holy Ghost Oh my, it wasn't even in my notes, man. That's just revelation. No pun intended. So incidentally, yeah, uh, husbands and wives not getting along. Can you imagine the shock and awe and horror of Adam and Eve when all of a sudden he's like, where'd you come from? He's like, I came from your side. What you talking about? Oh yeah, well, you don't act like you came from my side. You know, and they're, they're off to the races, right? Like, is there a therapist in the house? You know, like, and and not only that, but uh, pain in childbirth. You know, that's why we have what we call epidurals, medicines, pain in childbirth, um, hard and futile. Work, you know, like, what am I doing out here on this job? Like, what am I doing? Just difficult. Get the earth to yield fruit for you. Crazy. And then, most of all, really the result of the curse is death. It's death. And there's so many things. That's, a, that's an interesting thing because we get... We just think, you know, a casket and a funeral. But there's pre-death, sickness, cancer, diabetes, things that you, you're physically, you're, you fall apart, you're, you know, things happen. You just, just, it's just, you get enough of it in you, you know. You're always fighting against death. Death is there. Uh, you know, you learn. Gravity, you don't play in the traffic. You just, death is there. Poverty, you get enough poverty in your life, you'll starve to death, you'll, like, death is always there. But when the curse is reversed, the last enemy that shall be destroyed is death. No death. Wow. Funeral homes, all out of business. No funeral homes. No more. No no undertakers. No cemeteries. No graveyards. It's over. No death. Now, 
I don't fully understand that because we're going to eat. And for me to eat, things have to die. One of the great mysteries of heaven. So, uh, there we go. Now, uh, this, this, uh, the, the, the curse, the curse. There, there will even be elements of the curse in the millennial reign of Christ, although it will be greatly mitigated because Jesus will be ruling and reigning on the earth, and there will be immortals at that time, which we've looked at, uh, because it will be raised, glorified, and come back to reign with him. But uh, this idea of a place where there is no curse, that's pretty phenomenal. And instead of the curse, we have the throne of God and the Lamb as a testament that always there will never be a curse because the Lamb has overcome. Spurgeon said this of the phrase, the throne of God and of the Lamb, and I love this. Henceforth, eternal praises to His name. The throne of God is the throne of the Lamb. It is a throne of righteousness, but no less a throne of grace. Aren't you glad He's not just a God of righteousness, He's a God of grace, right? I love that. There on the throne of the Almighty, mercy reigns. According to the merit of the sacrifice and the virtue of the atonement, all the statutes and decrees of the kingdom of heaven are issued. The altar and the throne have become identical. From that throne, no fiery bolt can ever again be hurled against the believer, for it is the throne of the Lamb as well as the throne of God. And His servants shall serve Him. It's this place of service for God's people. So it's, it's, it's a picture of pure blessedness, uh, but of service, not, Guzik puts it like this, not arduous, curse-stained toil. What am I doing on this job? But this idea of meaningful service. It's not a place, one writer said, of indolent leisure, but a place where service is done. And it all centers on God. And it says that we'll see His face. Uh, it's a place where God's people see His face, this, this idea of intimacy, face-to-face -face fellowship with God. Moses wanted to look in the face of God, was denied that privilege, but everyone in heaven will see Him face-to-face. -face. And uh, so it's... The idea that, that we have things to do is kind of interesting to me. We, we do things in heaven. We don't just sit around and lounge around. We, we, it reminds me years ago, Lizzie, little girl, was with my mom. And my mom had this song she always used to sing as a kid. It said, and some of y'all may know it, but it was like, Ate a peanut, ate a peanut, ate a peanut just now. Remember that? So it just now, ate a peanut, you know, and it was rotten, you know. It was rotten, it was rotten. You know, uh, ate it anyway, ate it anyway, you know, died, right? Well, Lizzie's with my mom. She's just having a great time singing that song, and she added her own verse. My mom told me about it, cracked her up. She had no idea. So she said, I died just now. And then Lizzie said, went to heaven, went to heaven, went to heaven just now, just now went to heaven, went to heaven, went to heaven. Saw Jesus on a cloud with his girlfriend. Saw Jesus on a cloud with his girlfriend. Saw Jesus on a cloud with his girlfriend just now. It was like, mom's like, what are y'all teaching your daughter, you know? like. So it's not like we go to heaven and we just sit on clouds. We don't become angels. We've already dealt with all that. We don't become cherubs. Like, we're people. We're human beings. But we don't sit on clouds 
And, and we certainly don't watch Jesus on a cloud with his girlfriend. But uh, yeah, I have to ask Lizzie about that sometime. <laughs> so we'll see his face. We'll see his face. See him. Won't that be great? To, to look, as the song used to say, to look full in his wonderful face. Just like the one. You're the one. The, the centerpiece of the Bible. The whole Bible is a Jesus book. Jesus said to the religious people of his day, he said, search the scriptures, look in them. They testify of me. Every story is telling the story of me. And we'll look in his face. I mean, look in his eyes. And it won't be like the disciples, like they were freaked out, even after the resurrection, trying to put it all together. But we'll be looking, we'll know as we are known, we're looking with a full-orbed understanding and grasping of who this is. It's going to be very, very powerful. I love it. So we can look. Now, here's the deal. Paul said that right now we get this glimpse of, of God. Listen to what he said, 2 Corinthians 4, 6. He says, For it is the God who commanded light to shine out of darkness, who has shown in our hearts to give the light of the knowledge of the glory of God in the face of Jesus Christ. And, and this is speaking of revelation as to who he is. I think that's what the light of the knowledge is, revelation knowledge of the glory of God in the face of Jesus Christ. But Paul also said this in 1 Corinthians 13, 12. He said, for now we see in a mirror a glass darkly, but then face to face. Now I know in part, but then I shall know just as I am also known. So in that day, it's not obscure. We will see Jesus clearly. Why? Because sin is done away with. We'll see Jesus clearly. Why? Because there's no cares and worries blinding us. We will see Jesus clearly. clearly. Why? There's no idols, no false gods in the way. Flesh as we knew it in the fall, done away with. This will be the greatest glory of heaven to know God, to know Jesus more intimately and wonderfully than we could have on earth. Spurgeon said, it's the chief blessing of heaven, the cream of heaven, the heaven of heaven, that the saints shall there see Jesus. I love that. Spurgeon has some great things to say about heaven, and I'm sorry to quote him so much, but there's just some fantastic stuff. He, he also said this, to look into the face of of Christ signifies to be well acquainted with his person, his office, his character, his work. So the saints in heaven shall have more knowledge of Christ than the most advanced here below. As one has said, the babe in Christ admitted to heaven discovers more of Christ in a single hour than is known by all the divines or the theologians of the assemblies of the church on earth. So... If somebody became a believer for five minutes, ten minutes, and then they show up in heaven, they know more than any of us could have known on earth. 
It's cool. His name will be on their foreheads. We have seen this, this idea of markings, you know, the mark of the beast, but also the mark of the Lord on the forehead. Uh, interesting. It, it's a, but here's what I get out of it. It's a place of identification. We're forever identified with the Lord. There's no doubt who belongs to the Lord there. Uh, other than that, that's all I get. I, it, I don't think it's a tattoo. You know, I don't. I don't know what it is. It's this 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 name. His name will be on their foreheads. We're we're marked. We're identified. There shall be no more night there. So it's a place where the I think it's the darkness of this world. It's gone. And 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 it's not even light from the sun. It says that God Himself is the light. Um, and 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 I've told you before. The scriptures that talk about our God dwells in unapproachable light and just some fascinating stuff if you dive into that, especially with physics and whatnot uh, and going into infinity or eternity and some of those equations. Uh, they shall reign forever and ever. It's, it's a place where God's people enjoy this eternal reign. It's not the thousand-year millennial reign. This is forever and ever. This is eternity. And so here you have... Uh, Paradise lost in Genesis, paradise regained in Revelation. The revocation of the curse, intimacy with God restored, and this idea of reigning. You know, Adam was supposed to be reigning, but the reign was short-lived. And now that reigning is is resumed, and it's, it's perfect. No more curse. Uh, let's go ahead and look at verses 6 and 7. Then he said to me, these words are faithful and true. And the Lord God of the holy prophets sent his angel to show his servants the things which must take, must shortly take place. Behold, I come quickly. Blessed is he who keeps the words of the prophecy of this book. So uh, he's saying these words are faithful and true. It's, it's like, John, this looks too good to be true. This looks too good to be true. But no, these words are faithful and true. This is, this is the truth. It's like he said, I'm telling you the truth. What you're seeing, this will take place shortly. It's, just, it's powerful. It's, it's, it seems to be blowing his mind. Blowing his mind. And then he says, the things which I'm showing you, they must take place shortly. I'm coming quickly. Now, the word quickly is... Also translated, can be translated uh, suddenly. So it's the idea of the is is his coming like imminent in John's day, quickly, like soon, time wise, linear wise, or is it when he comes? It's a sudden coming. Well, as we've looked at from our study in the Book of Acts and through the uh, expedition early church as we went through the epistles in chronological order. And then even in Revelation, we've talked about how that that the last days, you know, you hear about the last days. The last days started in the Messianic age. So when Jesus, when the Messiah was born, that's the beginning of the last days. The Messianic age. And we're still in the Messianic age. Why? When, when Jesus stopped Saul on the road to Damascus, Saul said, who are you, Lord? He said, I am Jesus whom you are, whom you are persecuting. There's a sameness, a oneness with Christ and his body. He's the head, we're the body, the body of Christ. We're still in the messianic age. 
Listen, the ministry of Jesus didn't stop in 33 AD. It continued in Acts chapter 2 and chapter 3 and chapter 4 and chapter 27 and 28. And to this day, Jesus is still ministering through his body, through the church. We're still in that messianic age, which means we're still in the last days. Remember in Acts 2 when Peter preached the message, inaugural message of the church, he said, this is that which was spoken of the prophet Joel in the last days. Saith God, I will pour out my spirit upon all flesh. The last days were in Acts 2, but they were also in Luke 2, and they're, they're here today uh, in September of 2019. These are still the last days. So it's not like he's coming quickly as in uh, like John should expect him any day or any week. It's the idea that when I come, I'm coming suddenly. But the idea is this also that the last day started with the Messianic age. Are you with me? Isn't this exciting? So it's kind of like this. It's not like, oh, the, the coming of Jesus is way over there. It's like when Jesus came, it was like we're on the edge of his coming. Like we're just kind of moving, but we're right here on the edge of his coming. He could come at any time. And that's always been a doctrine, and I think that it's significant in the church and even in the the biblical church, when we read through the epistles, there's the idea of the imminent return of Jesus. He could come at any time. And there's some that have different views. This has to take place. This has to take place. I don't think there's any prophecy that has to take place for him to come again. And so the idea is you, I mean, you live like he could come tomorrow. In Africa, uh, there, uh, there, there's some... Some churches over there that, that have the doctrine of Maranatha, and it's not original with them, but I've been over there. The doctrine of Maranatha is that uh, they just believe Jesus could come at any time, and so they'll kind of freak their congregations out, and, and they'll occasionally they'll, they'll say, uh, uh, somebody will just go, Maranatha! And when they do, the whole church jumps up as if to go in the rapture, and they begin to praise the Lord. Like it could, they just like, they just at any time. Now, I kind of grew up with that in my old school church because sometimes, you know, the preachers start preaching on the book of Revelation or the book of Daniel or the rapture or the coming of the Lord. And, and he would have some dude staked out in the balcony with a trumpet. Anybody ever been there, done that? Some of you have no idea. You don't know what you're missing. But, like, they're preaching on the coming of the Lord, and you're like, and he could come in, and, he, and Gabriel's going to come over the, that that. What do they call it? The, uh, the, the balcony. Oh, they had that word, that old school word. What was that word? Uh, the, uh, the, I don't know, the portals of glory or that banister or whatever it was. And he's going to step through the portals of glory, blow that trumpet. And all of it. when he did that, the guy in the balcony is like, <laughs> and, you know, your hair stands up on the back of your neck. And says, look, kid, my eyes were, and then I'm like, I didn't go. But then I'm like, neither did the preacher or any of these people. <laughs> Anyhow, there was the idea of the imminent return of the Lord. And we should live as if his return is imminent. And I think that, uh, that scripturally, I think we're, we're safe and sound to take that point of view. Uh, it's the idea the time is at hand. The time is at hand. Verses 8 and 9, now, now I, John, saw and heard these things, and when I heard and saw, I felt, I, I love this, this is the second time we've seen this in the Revelation. And when I heard and saw, I fell down to worship 
before the feet of the angel who showed me these things. And then he said to me, I love this, see that you do not do that. <laughs> right? For I am your fellow servant and your brethren, the prophets, uh, and of your brethren, the prophets, and of those who keep the words of this book. Worship God. Isn't that funny? Now, I love the honesty of John because I'm just telling you, I wouldn't have written that. I would be too embarrassed. You want that? You'll have to write it yourself, Lord. <laughs> I'm not right. I'm humiliated. But John wrote this down, and I fell down. This is not you or me. This is John. He walked with Jesus. He was there at the crucifixion at the foot of the cross. Jesus said, woman, behold your son, son, behold your mother. He, he took care of Mary. He, he, he was there at the resurrection. He was there on the day of Pentecost. He's outlived all the other apostles. His brother was the first to be martyred. Here he is on the Isle of Patmos. He's having these ecstatic revelations. And, and, and he's just human after all. And he falls down and worships the angel. And I think the angel's being as diplomatic as he can. Um, see to it that you do not do that. Uh, don't get carried away, son. I'm your fellow servant, your servant of your with your brethren, the prophets, and, and all those who keep the words of this book. I, I love the idea that he equates John, the prophets, and all those who keep the words of this book. I'm telling you, we're in good company, y'all. When you keep the words of this book, you're in good company. And just like John, we're not perfect. We'd have probably done the same thing. You know, this heavenly being showing us all this stuff. We're like, this is too good to be true. Write it down. It's faithful and true. And uh, He's showing you all this stuff, and, and you're just like, oh, my God. Oh, my God. Oh my. You see that you don't do that. Get up. Stop it. If you want to worship, worship God. I love that. I love that. Stand with me right now. No created being should ever be worshipped. That's the idea. Only the creator. We don't worship angels. There are some that have done that. That's wrong. Don't do that. They're fellow servants. And I love that too. We're not in this alone. There are angels that work with us in the redemptive plans and purposes of God. See to it that you don't do that. I just love that. Verses 10 and 11. And he said to me, Do not seal the words of the prophecy of this book, for the time is at hand. He who is unjust, let him be unjust still. He who is filthy, let him be filthy still. He who is righteous, let him be righteous still. He who is holy, let him be holy still. The idea is this. Don't seal the words of this book up. The time is at hand. Remember, Daniel was sealed up until the time of the end. But this shows us again that from the time this was written, it was for John's generation all the way to us in the last days. We're in the time of the end. And this is not to be sealed up until... Later, we're to get understanding from it now. So that's the idea. And then this idea of 
he who is unjust, let him be unjust. It, it's not the idea of, uh, you know, in heaven, like, he's back to looking at our situation now, and he's saying, and this is so cool, and we'll stop with this. He's coming back so soon and so suddenly that you're not going to have time to go try to make things right. You, you remember the parable of the, the ten virgins, you know, the wise and the foolish. It's like, behold, the bridegroom comes, and they go trying to get ready, but they missed the coming. That's the idea. Whatever you are when he returns, that's what you are. I want to be ready, don't you? I don't want to be, uh, I don't want to be like the, the unrighteous and the filthy and the unjust. I, I want to be holy. I, I want to be living for God. I want to be looking. I want to have my lamp trimmed and burning, right? I want to be ready for the return of Jesus. And again, I think this implies that idea of the imminent return of Jesus. There's no time to get ready. No time to go get things right. When He comes, He's come. He's there. Be ready at all times. Amen. And it's not hard to get ready, really. It doesn't mean you're perfect. It means your faith is always in Him. Looking to you, Jesus. Seven days, seven times a day will I praise you. That's a good way to stay ready. Seven times a day. The wording is halal. I love that. Seven times a day. Well, I kind of give you some crazy praise. Get beyond just, you know, a little, thank you, Jesus. Woo. Jesus, I love you. I thank you, Lord. You're coming back for me one day. Seven times a day. I want to be ready when he returns. Thank you for joining us today. We hope you were blessed. For more information on our church, Pastor Donovan, or service times, please visit our website at golifepoint.com.